For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Happy Fashion Revolution Week, my friends. What have you been up to? Have you been asking brands, who made my clothes? Or perhaps you've been sharing, I made your clothes. I did a post on Instagram recently asking who listens to this podcast while they're sewing. And the answer was heaps of you, whether you're designers or makers or crafters or just love doing creative stuff with your hands. So this episode, I think, is going to chime very well with you. Actually, quite a few people tell me they listen while they're ironing. Not so creative, but I relate. And also while they're walking or commuting. Anyway, have you seen the Fashion Revolution consumer survey results? It's so interesting. It just shows how far the conversation has advanced. I'm going to share some with you. So 85% of respondents said that fashion brands should be tackling climate change. 72% said that brands should do more to improve the lives of the women making their products. And 80% said they ought to disclose their manufacturers. The majority agreed that government has a role to play. And three quarters said that fashion brands should be required by law to protect the environment at every stage of production. I would have to agree with that. Now, this week's guest is my craftivist mate, Sarah Corbett. She is the author of How to Be a Craftivist and the founder of the Craftivist Collective. She's a Liverpudlian, she's charming, and she likes a red wine. We recorded this in her place in London over a bit of a drink. Now, Sarah is the one behind the shop-dropping concept. Have you guys heard of that? It was a collaboration with Fashion Revolution, and Sarah's going to tell you all about what's involved in a moment. We will also hear briefly from the American crafter, Betsy Greer, and she's the one who coined the term craftivist back in 2003. I love these women and how they centre creativity in their toolbox for change and just how cool they are, let's face it. This episode is a call to arms for wannabe activists everywhere. Isn't that you? It's certainly me. It's a demonstration of the political power of fashion and of the persuasive nature of gentle activism. And the wonderful idea that together we might stitch a rebellion, sweep out the status quo and usher in a fairer, more just world in fashion and beyond. Well, I am up for that. Although I have to confess, can't stitch to save myself. I'm like the most reluctant craftivist. Anyway, the concept, love it. As per usual, please do get in touch and let me know what you think of all this. If you've practised craftivism, if you'd like to, and in support of what cause. Sarah, we're in your house and I'm so pleased because we have actually dabbled with the idea of recording this for a while and also meeting for cups of tea for, and never managed it. I think for over a year. Yeah, 
But we persisted. Nevertheless, she she persisted. persisted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's so nice. I actually, before I came, was wondering how crafty your house would be. And I was very happy to see your little yearbook. Could you tell us what that is? Yeah. So I've got adopters. So as people might guess, being a craftivist, you don't really get much money, but you do it for the cause. So to be able to do the right work rather than just money jobs, I ask people to adopt a craftivist for £10 a month so I can have a baseline of the living wage and do good work and not just work to pay the rent. It's like crowdfunding, which I did myself. If you look throughout history, most activists, full-time activists have got patrons. Gandhi did... Most people did. Actually, if you look at the arts, and exactly. I think when we yeah. talk about nowadays, we've sort of, I'm going to say denigrated it, but we've lessened the value of creative pursuits by using that word content, particularly in journalism. Yeah. Like, instead of writing a mm-hmm. book or a wonderful story, we call it content, yeah. and then it doesn't and mean as much. quick transactions and not investing. So I asked people to adopt me, so I made them a yearbook. So I've got a trolley next to the front door full of yearbooks that are going to go in the post tomorrow. But that book was open on a particular page and it was showing shop dropping. It was, yeah. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit later. Mm-hmm. This episode is running in the Fashion Revolution Week. As listeners will know, I'm quite obsessed with Fashion Revolution. So am I. Yeah, <laughs> Sarah's got a history of it. Mm-hmm. Just before we get into the background of all the stuff that you do, just tell us what shop dropping is. Shop dropping is the opposite of shoplifting. So for me, that means putting little mini fashion statements, which are beautiful little scrolls that are wrapped in ribbon into pockets of clothes in stores that could be more ethical is what I like to say and people can figure out what that is for them Um, and you shop drop them you put them in the pockets of shirts or bags or shoes for people who love fashion and who buy from there to find in their own time yeah so they're completely anonymous they're handwritten with a fountain pen or an ink pen in your most beautiful writing and there's three different messages that the craftivists decide which one to write but it's non-judgmental it's open questions it's or it's supports fashion revolution so it's about helping people be curious and ask what's the story behind this item of clothing or you know clothes maketh the person what does that mean so really encourage them and at the end it says at fash rev for people to google for more info to see all the different ways they can be part of the solution you can buy a little kit and i did you did yeah how was that claire it was super fun was and it shameless plug you can read the story of it in rise and resist yeah But I like the idea that you're doing something in community. Mm -hmm. That could be kind of a lofty phrase for the way that we did it. We just had some friends around for tea. It was just three of you, wasn't it? Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea being that it sparks conversation. Yeah. That you're asking, why are we doing this? Why are we questioning the fashion system? What is going on with fast fashion what do we know that others don't know? Mm-hmm. And you're not going to know. You're not going to write the message if you don't agree with it. So you take ownership of it because you've handwritten it. You've made it slowly and neatly. You're giving it anonymously. So it's humble. It's not about you. And you're dropping them in shops, which for a lot of craftivists is quite scary. Some like it, some it really scares them. But it really shows their commitment. And whoever finds it, you're not pushing it in them. You're not making them feel unjudged. You're offering for them to think on their own, in their own time, on their own, share it with people if they want, or just have a quiet, you know, be intrigued on their own. Now, if people are listening to this thinking, what, did what? you just say craftivism? What is that? What do you mean? <laughs> Let's just get down to absolute basics. Mm-hmm. What is craftivism, Sarah Corbett? 
So it was officially coined in 2003 by an American lady called Betsy Greer. Ah, Betsy. She is rad. An author, academic and maker who was initially inspired by riot girl bands and anti-war activism in the 90s. I interviewed Betsy for Rise and Resist and I asked her the same question. How do you define craftivism? And this is what she told me. Basically, it's combining craft and activism. In essence, it's using your creativity to create a better world. I focused on the terms craft and activism because when I started this in 2003, craft was seen as something that was like not cool. And activism was something that I was having a hard time understanding. Activism, just holding a placard and and waving it, that was not something that was effective for me. So I kind of wanted to talk about them in different ways. And I was at my knitting circle and I was talking about it and it's like, I think they're connected. And what was amusing to me um, was that I had told two guy friends about this idea and about how they were related. And um, they both said that was stupid. <laughs> and then I told like a room full of women and they were like, what? That's amazing. And then one of them was like, you could call it craftivism. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went home and Googled it. And it had been used in a workshop by a group called the Church of Craft. And so it had four hits on Google. And at that time, my background is kind of in social science and I'm kind of a dork. So I wanted to see what would happen if you had a word that only had, say, four hits on Google, you could track it, right? Who found you and, and why do you think they found you in the early days? I have no idea. But I do know that like at first it was really funny because the women in my knitting group would be like, someone was talking about craftivism today and like, I don't know, some friend or something. And they had, for a while, you could always track it back to me. Like, oh, well, someone, I was telling a friend and then a friend told this friend and then whatever. So, you know, because the people that were involved in craft at that time was fairly small. And I had talked about it on a website called Get Crafty as well. And so people were kind of, you know, talking about this kind of exploration of, of how craft and activism can go together because, I just wanted to have an idea that I wanted to share and that I wanted people to take and use it in their own way. People have been using craft as a way of resistance and a way of affecting change for hundreds of years. I just wanted to call more attention to the power behind it. And if people want to call it a trend, then that is their right. But I will come back and say, look at all these things that have been happening since way before we were, any of us were twinkles in our parents' eye, even before our parents' time, our grandparents' time. And it'll keep going, you know, whether people use the term or use something else entirely. And that's what's exciting about craft me is that you're making and you kind of join this thread, you know, kind of pun intended almost as of people that have been before you, you're there now and then people will go, you know, after you. People like... Sarah Corbett. I got into craft as an activist in 2008 and saw lots of elements of where I thought this could be really useful in activism. And what, how I like to explain it is it's a bit like the word punk. When you think of punk music, you've got all these different bands that sound completely different. And that's like craftivism. If you Google craftivism, you've got loads of different variations. And my approach I call gentle protest. So activism is always the priority and craft is the tool 
not the taskmaster. And it's all about doing careful and courageous and compassionate activism, using the process of craft to slow down and think or chat with your mates, doing small and beautiful objects as catalysts for conversation and thought and action, building relationships with politicians or board members or other people as critical friends by giving them gifts to say, we believe in you, that you spent hours making. So there's lots of ways to do it, but I think the most effective way to do craftivism is through gentle protest. There's so many words that you used then that were very carefully selected that I want to pick you up on and talk about because it's Mm -hmm. so interesting. The first one is gentle. Yeah, yeah, often, and I used to be like this as well, I'd think gentle protest, think that's what I do and why it works. But gentleness, I don't mean passive or weak or, you know, it really is about being loving. But I think loving activism, people just sort of laugh. Loving each other, but also loving nature. Yeah. I'm into that. And the gentleness for me is about being kind and considered and thoughtful with what you do and just treating people how you want to be treated. And that doesn't make you a worse activist or a weaker activist. It's actually really hard to be gentle and loving, especially with people who are doing really harmful things. But if you think about the rest of life that's not activism, you wouldn't go to a staff meeting and scream and shout at people or throw eggs at them or say, you're an awful human being. You'd say, did you realise you were doing that? How can we change this? How can we all be part of the solution? So I think that in the 10 years I've been doing craftivism, what's had the strength is doing it in a very respectful intriguing encouraging very strategic way is this I call gentleness when I interviewed you for my book you I'm paraphrasing but you said something like sometimes you look at politicians all yelling at each other and you think if you were in any other context if you were children you would be told to behave better yeah come back when you know how to behave yeah completely and I find it really weird I mean I I've been part of so many activist groups and some of them you know like we abuse other situations as well I joined one group who bought a tank to take to the arms trade fair to ride to the arms trade fair in London well Vivian Westwood drove a tank to David Cameron's summer house didn't yeah. she which I thought was pretty good <laughs> well but this was quite confusing because so I said to the group so how what's that doing we're going to close off the arms trade fair you and I probably fair. clash here because I yeah. like a bit of drama but you're always coming down to strategy it's actually which very it clever needs to be saying what's your what are you yeah. doing what's and your ag- purpose and again with anything if we want to make a good jumper you know if you want to make a good item of clothing you need a good pattern a clear strategy you need to hone your craft activism you need to hone your craft you know I've been part of activism since I was three so I've seen what's won what's lost what's worked what's harmed a a campaign what's credited people discredited people and at the end of the day if we genuinely want to make the world a better place we need to hone our craft in activism so when these lads took a tank to the arms trade fair and I said what's the strategy they just wanted to go on a tank and they used activism as their excuse (laughs) and it was frustrating (laughs) there's so many things that every time you say something I'm like I wish I was taking little notes in my little red notebook because there are so many words and phrases I want to pick you up on but I can't let that go past I've been an activist since I was three yeah well my (laughs) my mum jokes that I was an activist in the womb so I grew up in a very low-income area of the UK Everton in Liverpool in the city Liverpool in the 80s um so pretty bleak in lots of ways we had a Thatcher government and a very corrupt council so double whammy my mum was a nurse and then a full-time mum and now she's a politician a local politician and doing really well my dad's still the vicar there 
So at the age of three, there's a photograph. I say age of three because I've got evidence. There's a a photograph of me outside a row of social housing, family housing, with big banners everywhere to say, save these homes. And I had my little beaker. I had an awful mullet, listeners, (laughs) that I'll never forgive my mother for cutting my hair, looking confused. And we won that campaign. I've got friends that live in those houses. So it's always, you know, our back kitchen, the vicarage was the hub of the community of people of all faiths and none talking about campaigning locally globally stuff on south africa apartheid stuff on local health centers we didn't have it was part of our blood obviously at three you're not going to figure this out but it dawns on me that often when you speak with people who have built a life on campaigning or in activism or indeed anywhere really but early wins give you momentum so yeah yeah when you can see that something can work yeah then that gives you i guess the incentive but also the hope and belief that if you keep on doing it you can change the world is that good then that early win stuff that when you're in local activism you see change I think there's pros and cons it also means that you can't give up easily and say activism doesn't work because you have seen that it works I like you (laughs) um so and I don't want to give up I know campaigning can work but I burnt out which I think yeah I nearly gave up because I thought I'm completely burnt out I'm not being very effective I'm treating you know in my jobs training people to be activists which is the only job I can do really well hang on rewind so as a mini three-year-old you were at a demo and then how did your journey into I hate that phrase I'm going to say my it again. journey I know it's so awful <laughs> I'm going to leave it how did your journey progress <laughs> so we won that campaign because we got lawyers involved we got bishops involved for media lots of elements of why we won because it's very rare for squatters to actually win and to save the houses and they're still there and then won lots of other local campaigns at school I won lockers for my pupils my peers Um, so the first thing I was voted head girl not because I was popular because I was a geek and everyone knew I knew about campaigning because that was how I grew up so I could chair meetings and all of that and Every year, I bet it was the same in your school, every year all the students said, why don't we have lockers like American people have? (laughs) And I thought, yeah, why don't we? We're carrying heavy bags. It's not good for us. It's taken up time and space. So I asked the head teacher and she said, it's a health and safety issue. And I thought, is it? So I asked the caretaker and he said, I don't think it is. So I said, well, should we measure the rooms and find out? So we measured the rooms because they're all the same each floor, realised it wasn't. And then I didn't do petitions or demos. I'm, you know, an introvert, as you know, so I sort of avoid that. But I found out how much it would cost. I got two parent governors who were the most influential governors. How old were you? I was... 16. Right. Got parent governors on our side, which I knew would help, and got other teachers on our side and presented it to the head teacher who went, yeah, all right then. So I knew it, I think for me, that was a tip and point of I knew you could win a campaign without having to do demonstrations, have placards, do petitions. You didn't have to, you just ask why and then find a way. Make a logical argument and present a possibility that has put into place. Yeah, and it's hard to say no when you've got a nice robust argument, which is what most a lot of my campaigning is about or you know shop dropping that creates a conversation but gets global media which we got which was another element for that campaign you then went on to work professionally as a campaigner you worked for Oxfam yeah how did that all pan out 
again I think that I'm a geek on activism so I want to make the world a better place but I want to do it well and I can see a lot of flaws in campaigns where people don't realize who the decision makers are and they target the wrong person and again oh, they just all go out in the street and rant and, and have a rant and feel have a good tantrum. and feel good for a bit but then don't achieve any and don't think activism can work so I, I want to do effective activism that's what gets me up in the morning is to do it well and to help other people do it well so that's always been what I'm passionate about so then that was the only job I could go for really so worked for Christian Aid worked for Oxfam worked for Difford the Department for International Development and I still work a lot with loads of charities. You've given a TED talk you had great TEDx talk. It's still TED mate but it was a TED talk of the day so it's yeah and also but not a real TED talk it is for me I just can't (laughs) even imagine how scary it is to stand on that stage and do that stuff and it was to 1500 teenagers and we all know teenagers are the hardest audience yeah it's quite scary well I just wanted to say you had very good hair so your mullet was behind you I'm sure you had plaits I had plaits on top of your head which I loved yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. hair in that talk, you tell the tale of if someone can't find you at a gathering or in a party, where are you? Or were you? I still am. I'm in the toilet, people, which most introverts are. Thing is, I did that thinking, it's to 1,500 teenagers, that's fine. I can tell them this story. I had no idea it was going to go on the TED website and be watched over a million times. And now I get people going, I know where you're going to go. Should we have a talk? Yeah, we can always find Can we have a, have a chat in the queue for the toilets? I'm like, oh. No, but come on, why do you do that? So it's yeah. all about this idea of being drained, isn't it? From giving too yeah. much and feeling that you've given all your possible possibly can trying to get people to sign a petition or trying to do the campaigning work but you're an introvert yeah which I only realized literally about four years ago I read Suzanne Cain's book quiet because I thought yeah quiet and I do quiet activism I had no idea what introvert meant really it wasn't in my general vocabulary and the more I read I was like this is an epiphany this is why I burn out so quickly this is why I'm really good at quiet conversations and not mobilizing lots of people so extroverts an introvert and it's, it's a spectrum I'm the extrovert I know this is great because my sister's an extreme extrovert and I'm quite an extreme introvert so it's but, basically so define talk, it. yeah so it's about where your energy comes from so as an extrovert you are seeking stimulus constantly from people from things from you know rides from horror films you love getting stimulated introverts stimulate their own thinking so much that any extra sort of tips them over the edge so when you were a little one and you were in your pram and you were looking out of the window constantly you looking have read at my everything book. around yeah. you <laughs> yeah and you can't stop looking at the world and you're just yeah. taking it all in yeah. and thinking about it even my as a, dad even said as a when, baby my dad <laughs> said when i popped out i mean popped out what 18 hours of labor <laughs> for my poor mother when i popped out i was just looking around and I had spiky black hair I had a head of black hair oh, see this blonde it. I am a fake blonde but honestly of those I'm still a bit eyebrows. of a blonde I had black hair black spiky like a little hair. mohawk yeah I had a faux hawk <laughs> we both had faux hawks yeah um, when I was in a uh, when we'd have a I'm just drinking wine and thinking <laughs> we're, I'm going to get us some baby pictures and I'll put send, them in the show notes I'll send you mine <laughs> you send me yours and maybe listeners can also share their baby pictures and we can all have a laugh yes please and then get back to activism so yeah the introvert in you yeah, so I love being on my own. I love going in the cinema, reading lots, thinking loads, which is helpful for strategy. But you can often go, oh, I don't want to go on that march. It's exhausting. It's too loud. I'm 
really good at one-to-one conversations. I like deep conversations. My sister loves conversations with loads of people and loves chanting and mobilising. So she was always a much better activist than me. But so actually, to put this in perspective, it could be quite stressful, maybe that's the wrong word, but draining, tiring and you know, something you have to build up to. Yeah, definitely. And then I'd need a nap afterwards when my sister or you would be full of more energy and go to the pub. Yeah, once ago, talk to everyone about it. I'd be completely wiped out, even though I cared so much and I'd want to do more. And I'd always be like, I don't understand this. I care just as much as everyone else. And I'll work really hard to be a good activist. And then I realised as an introvert... 90% of our activism is extrovert or quick transactions, lots of stimulus. So just quickly, is it true that around a third of people are introverts? A third to a half. Mm. So again, if you look at, you have to see it as a spectrum and everyone sits somewhere on it. So ambiverts are in the middle. Okay, so what John, does that mean? I don't even so know the that, word. So that means that you're you're good in both situations. So you can be drained a bit from either. I event. do know the word because I know ambidextrous. Yeah, so it's ambivert. Hands. So there's a difference between shyness and introvert and extrovert. Figuring out that you had this tendency to a very common half of us probably yeah. personality type. That's one thing. But at what point did you put that together and think this impacts my enjoyment of and obviously you were still achieving but my enjoyment of activism yeah and then at what point did you put that together with this idea of being an activist in a different way it's fascinating it is and it's that organic journey I never planned to do this (laughs) but it did just naturally happen so you know in 2008 I absolutely burnt out as an activist and I was traveling the country training people to be activists working for Difford and I get travel sick so I couldn't read my report or do my emails and like I bet lots of listeners here all totally get I missed using my hands and being creative and not just tapping on a laptop every listener of the wardrobe crisis podcast went ah yeah because we have so many lovely listeners that love to sew. Yeah. So many people message me and say that they actually listen to this while they're sewing, yeah. while they create crafting or knitting yeah. or designing. And or using your cutting. hands yeah. while we're listening to you means that we engage more deeply in it. So it's a good thing to use your head, hands and heart together. So I used to love to paint, but I couldn't do that on a train. So I picked up a tiny cross-stitch kit of a teddy because it was cheap and portable. And what I love about crafts... softy. I know. Why was it a teddy? I didn't know It was just tiny and it was cheap. It was the only one. I didn't know what to do with it. But I wanted to make something with my hands. I'd never done craft before, but what I love about craft is it is accessible. It's just little crosses. And you can do it while you're travelling. Exactly. So I started doing it and I immediately noticed it slowed me down. You can't separate your thread too fast because it'll break or not up. There is a way to do it, as some of you will know, and I don't teach that way. So by separating the thread... I immediately noticed how tight my shoulders were, how shallow my breath was, how shaky my hands were, how impatient I was, how I was really worried about whether I could carry on being an activist or if it was completely not for me. So it's sort of a centering. It really made you mindful of your body as well as how you were feeling, which in any activist group I'd never, ever been asked or asked anyone else how are you feeling before we react to everything and plan everything? And then by doing this repetitive action, it was very soothing. It calmed my brain down. It helped me clear the anger and the worry and the fog. And there's so much that clinicians and neuroscientists now have gathered so much data around repetitive hand actions with with craft of how amazing it is for critical thinking. So it gave me this comforting tool to ask myself 
really uncomfortable questions that if I wasn't using my hands to do something, I could go in a downward spiral. So I had a few hours making this teddy, which I wasn't, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But the repetitive action was therapeutic, meditative. It helped me ask big questions of, can I be a good activist? How can I do it? And exactly the same journey, my neighbours opposite me were saying what are you doing? Because it was quite unusual, still is, to craft on a train. And weirdly, with my brain and background, I said what I was doing, but my immediate thought was, oh, if I was quoting, you know, if I was stitching a quote from Gandhi, we could talk about that. So the fact that no one normally in Britain talks to each other, especially in London, the fact that they initiated a conversation and I wasn't saying, look Actually, at me. really powerful, isn't it? It was so powerful. And again, I read a lot on psychology. And complete strangers. So complete not strangers. someone with whom you obviously have something in common and no. not someone you're travelling with. And it's, you know, I read a lot on psychology. So looking back, I know now that the fact that they initiate a question means they're more open-hearted and open-minded than if you think of a lot of activism where you're demanding and people's attention and people go into fight flight or freeze mode so our actual brains go into survival mode when you're in survival mode because you don't know what's going on you physically can't hear properly so this is for example if you're on walking through a protest and you're surrounded by people who seem to be high energy slash potentially angry you wonder if there's going to be trouble you feel hemmed in and then someone shouts at you Mm -hmm. we want whatever it is which stuff and the strengths to that your reaction is to to close off and the strengths to it is you get media attention it's a nice clear demand you can galvanize people towards it we need quick responses as well but I missed in my activism doing you know getting people to sign petitions and going on marches there wasn't a space even in activism planning meetings we just plan lots of stuff there wasn't a space to go I'm doing this what do you think what would you put so it's almost like the quiet and the mindful aspect of the handwork and yeah. just the focus that you so have to give. So on your own, you can just do it on your own in your bedroom and have really deep engagement of the complexities of injustice. What's your part to play? Where can you be part of the solution? You've really got to apply your mind to it though. Yes, I'm, you totally I'm thinking, do. Yeah, yeah, there is Which is why I have, element to this. I have yeah. craft of thought questions and I'm pretty tough in my workshops. Otherwise it becomes, I mean, I'm just thinking. You could just God, watch should, telly yeah. and do it watch strictly and people do yeah and all something to do with my hands yeah and that's different i mean all of my craftivism is text-based so it's actually quite hard to do whilst you're watching tv in case you make a spelling mistake and again um you're not going to stitch something you don't agree with so you've already decided because you're investing time and energy into it but it's totally not going to stitch a sampler that says more coal exactly because it's got you might do (laughs) but it would be a bit odd if you don't believe in it and by making something so it's almost the act of planning it and the act yeah. of deciding to do it is the first yeah. step yeah and then doing it you're committing to it cross stitching mm-hmm. embroidering a hanky yeah shop dropping yeah rattle off some other forms of craftivism for people that may not know or haven't considered before what they might be so different projects so you're giving a gift to people that spent hours to do it Often we make stuff for ourselves as a physical reminder to remind you to be that good global citizen you want to be. Or you could get a tattoo. Or, well, like, I know I it's do, not craft I do but that I do as well. I've got lots of tattoos to help me on my journey. I just had to ask you because I know it's not obviously craftivism, but I thought before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about how you need to remind yourself constantly to stay on track. What are your goals? What does success really mean to you? Why yeah. are you doing what you're doing? Yeah. And I was saying how professionally it's easy to get 
sidetracked and start freaking out about little things that don't matter and then you forget the reason that I do this work is because I want to change fashion and make it more sustainable yeah and you told me the story about your tattoo yeah I've got jigsaw pieces on my arms why to remind me to be a really good jigsaw piece in the puzzle but I'm not the whole puzzle because movement building which is what we're both engaged in in different areas is obviously not about one person and you can't have it on one person and it's not sustainable it's not effective so it has to be everyone exactly which is humbling which is a good thing and helps you focus and not focus on the wrong things like how many followers you've got which often we all get distracted about so yeah being a good jigsaw piece in the puzzle and so the craftivism equivalent of that could be to make something that reminds you in your house I like it yeah so we have footprints people make we've got stitchable change makers which are letter pressed dot to dots of different change makers you can learn from them and how they've used their context their influence their skills so tell us about how you use the school of gentle protest in order to disseminate these ideas and get people to access them Yeah, so for me, it's the gentle protest is where I think there's a real benefit. And I think for me, craftivism is one tool in the activism toolkit. So when you care about an issue, we shouldn't see it as a movement or I'm only a craftivist, I do this. You should say, what's the issue I care about? Open up that toolbox and say, do I need to do a march? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Where's craftivism helpful and where it's not? And I was asked to do a six week like residency project online and offline. It was around the Magna Carta. It was an anniversary of the Magna Carta on human rights. So I said, oh, well, let's do a school of gentle protest, which isn't just craft. And more and more people around the world were wanting to be more effective in gentle protest. There's obviously your book. You can find out stuff on Instagram. Yeah. How popular is this? And I want you to talk to me a little bit about the take up of it, because when I first discovered the concept of craftivism, I thought it was quite niche, quite weird, very intriguing. (laughs) Still is. But kind of like a weird bonkers (laughs) sideline thing. Now I feel like actually this is gathering pace. It is definitely. And I think the book helped. I mean, I wrote the book to challenge people to say you can like anything, you can make a good dress or you can make one that falls apart straight away. You could make craftivism that might look lovely, but what's the issue? What's the strategy? So the book goes through all of the strengths and also hints at a lot of the weaknesses. But why do you think people are so keen to take this up? I think it's changed. So when I started in 2008 and my plan was never for people to join in, you know, I'm an introvert that likes being on her own, but people immediately online, I set up a little blog for friends and family to see what I was doing. And immediately the first person I had was an Australian lady saying, what are you doing? Ah. Can I join in? Then it was, it tended to be people who loved craft and wanted to use it for activism or people who were burnt out activists or cynical around it. And people who saw activism as something that didn't fit them if they were quieter or more shy saying oh I think I could do this but activism has only recently become this massive buzzword yeah. it's a hashtag it is it's a thing it's fashionable it's now fashionable. for the first time for a long time so then it was people who are interested now it's people who say I've got to do something and I need your help I've got to do it now so it's quite different and you know I have I'm really proud to say that our craftivism projects have changed laws we changed the law in Spain to protect migrating birds through a craftivism project really we helped uh, one of the biggest companies in the UK to increase their wage for 50,000 staff because of one of our projects and I constantly get lovely emails from people saying I did your kit and it's changed the way I actually do stuff the other day you yeah. were in Colombia. I was in Colombia. Speaking to an auditorium filled with 300 people. Yeah. 
who hadn't even had access to your book in Spanish. I know. I made them the manifesto in Spanish. I got that translated. I mean, it's amazing. I think there's lots of reasons. We're in a very digital world and people for their own well-being are desperate to get offline and use their hands for good. We know how empowering craft can be. There's also that disconnection, isn't there, that people fight that feeling of disconnection that comes from all those different factors. I mean, the fact that we're always staring at our screens, the fact that our neighbourhoods are changing, all those things. So we yearn for connection and this is one pathway to it, right? Yeah. And then the general protest element, again, you know, coming back to would you scream in the boardroom or would you scream to your friends of common sense we know that screaming at someone might help us in the short term release stuff but we actually feel worse you know we want people to be the best version of themselves we want to encourage people and we want to find ways to do it and I'm offering one tool to help people on that on that journey the word journey I'm just saying throughout it's all about journeys the craft of us journey and what I love is people are coming from completely different background so I loved being in Colombia because I thought is this going to resonate completely different culture to the UK but so much resonated with people people totally got it different ages men totally getting it are some people just not predisposed to be able to do this kind of activism because it requires more attention more care more mindfulness and more quietitude and some of us it's a habit that's hard it's like I can't meditate I don't do yoga It's hard, but you can do it. We can rewire our brains. And what I love is it challenges people, but in a safe space. So today I was doing it with this group of staff from a charity and some were loving how chilled it was. Some found it really difficult, but even that, they learned a lot about themselves. Yeah, and also anything worth doing is hard. Well, and that's what's difficult. So, you know, some of my work will not be as popular as other craftivism projects because I'm asking a lot of people. But I know through 10 years of doing it and we again know through our own experience that when you do something that's a bit harder you're much more proud of it I know you've learned stuff from it you're more likely to keep it or commit to it than doing something quick and easy and you know I use craft resources and we're living in a climate crisis so I'm highly sensitive as I should be about how much resources we use if people are going to use it I don't want it to go in a landfill at the end of the day I do upcycle as much as I can and use, you know, our felt is made from post-consumer plastic bottles, which I'm very happy that we we sourced that. But it is about helping people as much as they can be the best strategic craftivist they can be, knowing that none of us will be perfect. We started talking about shop dropping and the fashion revolution connection, which I love, and that's how I found you. Yeah. But why is it so important for you personally and for us generally to put those two things together, fashion and activism? Yeah. Personally, I've always loved fashion. I still have a subscription to Vogue that my godmother buys me every year and I love it. (laughs) I've always loved fashion and I've always felt like as an activist joining different groups that I wasn't allowed to like fashion. I was always told that's shallow, you've got to be purist, all of that stuff. And I always thought, actually, we can change the fashion industry sometimes quicker than governments. You know, companies can change stuff around quite a lot PR is a big issue so if you've got people saying especially if you've got customers saying we want you to change can make an enormous difference and I I do love fashion and it's a huge industry that can be changed there's so many elements to it around environmental issues around garment workers we all know that stuff and I want it to improve and because there are really ethical brands big and small There's no excuse for bigger brands to say we can't do it because they can do it and they can lead the way. 
I also like the idea of the fact that fashion has a long history of, in fact, you could almost say the entire thing is based on craft. Yeah. And so that kind of thread, see what I did there? All of it. (laughs) That runs through the industry itself, but also then using craftivism as opposed to other kinds of activism in order to shape it feels like something quite profound. Yeah. And when you see it, I mean, the first project I ever did, which is still one of our most popular, are these mini protest banners. So there's very small, about A6, like postcard size, you cross stitch them and you hang them up somewhere relevant to the issue. And as a fashion lover, who then is also frustrated about the ugly side of the fashion industry, I'd hang them outside certain shops with questions or facts on to say, this you know kind of questions so questions of this was before fashion revolution actually of I remember the first one I did was outside Topshop so do you remember when Kate Moss did a range with them I do and I love Kate Moss 2007 when she stood in the windows yeah so in the red dress that just came out and War on One, who did lots around the fashion industry and still do had a statistic about how she was given a five million pound contract but Vietnamese garment workers were paid like 13 pence or something. So I just put those two up and said, is this just? Because it's a big amount. But I think what's good about that is it's not saying what's right or wrong so that people don't think for themselves. You could say, well, of course she needs that money and it's probably cheaper to live in Vietnam. So it gets people thinking. I had the war on want badge for people to find out more info. And I took a picture, got my friend to take a nicer picture outside Topshop in Oxford Circus. And it spread like wildfire on the internet. People were going, oh, who's done this? Where's this? And um, and people still do those banners now. And the street art element, a lot of people really like. But I had sequins on it, so it shined in the wind. It was it was cross stitch. Yeah. It was next to you know it's Oxford Circus with lots of fashion lovers. And if you see a bit of fabric that's delicate and small below eye level so you feel like you found it it's clearly handmade and it's a bit wibbly and wobbly it's not perfect you had all these people taking pictures going oh look at this and this was before you know pinterest existed Mm. and instagram existed people still had this it's so weird with craft when someone makes something that's handmade and small you hold it differently don't you you're very delicate with it the sense of touch and something soft calms you down so again that survival element it makes you engage with it more deeply so So all of these elements that resonated with other craft lovers and other fashion lovers because it was textile because it was handmade it often reminds you of your grandmother who might have done needlepoint or or those generations there's so many elements that really attract people but I reckon the big question is do you have to be good at it do you have to be a great sewer do you have to be no skilled I learned from YouTube So if I can do it, anyone can do it. And actually, if you've never done craft before, that can make you a better craftivist sometimes. So you've got no excuse. I've done workshops for hundreds of people, some people who've never touched a needle and thread in their life, and they have been able to do it. So no excuse, listeners. You can do it. And no judgment. No judgment at all. Yeah, just try your best. And you'll see, people will see that in your object, that you've tried your best. It's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you.